0: Welcome Language Learners, I'm your host Alexandria of the Insecurities About Language podcast where I will explore all types of language journeys from individuals, teachers, families teaching children, and really anyone who wants to have a conversation about language, what it means to them, and how it relates to their life. Also, I will tackle the death of languages within families. Now let's begin. All right, so welcome, Shauna, to the Insecurities About Language podcast. We are talking about death of language within your family. So if you can introduce yourself, tell us where you were born, where you grew up, and a bit of background of your family in their first language. Sure.
1: My name is Shauna Elena Inofuentes, fuentes and I was born in New York City, but raised in the D.C. metro area in the largest Bolivian and the largest Quechua community in the U.S. Uh, My father's from La Paz, Bolivia, and my mom is from North America. She's Ashkenazi Jewish. So I have a mixed background. Um, And I grew up bilingual, Spanish and English, but uh, also being taught a little bit of Aymara, which is my heritage language. Uh, learn just little things like how to greet people, um, the niceties and how to count. And uh, for people who aren't familiar, Aymara is one of the most widely spoken um, American Indian languages. It's got rough, a little over 2 million native speakers. Um, it originated in and is still spoken in the Andes. And um, in my community in the DC area, uh, the most widely spoken language or uh, Amerindian language there is Quechua. And Quechua is actually the most widely spoken or has the most speakers of any Native American language at roughly 10 to 12 million speakers, depending on what dialects you include. And it's um, um, even though there are so many speakers of Aymara and Quechua, there are they're both considered endangered and that's in li- that has to do with my life's work which you can get into later and then so growing up i heard one grandmother my on my dad's side speak aymara and then on the other side of my jewish side i would hear my grandma speak yiddish and i did not understand either of them. <laughs> maybe words here and there and they sounded very very different And then obviously in my community, I would hear uh, usually the older generation speak Quechua and I would absorb it that way.
0: Tell me, what does the death of language within families mean to you?
1: So the death of language, I think ironically, and maybe hopefully also means the rebirth and uh, revitalization and living of language at the same time. So I am the founder and CEO of a nonprofit initiative in my community um, in the DC metro area, uh, which seeks to revitalize or it's it champions the intergenerational survival of the Quechua language within that community, focus on focusing on the youth. Now, I started that because of my experience with near death of Aymara in my own family. So, as I mentioned, I grew up hearing my, my grandmother speak Aymara, and I always thought, oh, I'm going to learn to speak fluently. I'll learn to speak fluently. Um, but, you know, growing up, this was before smartphones, and my grandmother definitely <laughs> here in Bolivia, I'm talking to you guys here from Bolivia right now, she definitely didn't have a smartphone, mm-hmm. um, even when cell phones did come about. And... Um, You know, life happens and uh, I I learned a little bit from her, but I definitely didn't learn to speak fluently because I I also didn't live here. So it was hard to communicate with her frequently, only when I came to visit. And so I thought she'd live forever. She was a strong woman, um, you know, uh, all kinds of antidotes. I mean, she was super, super strong. She would, um, you know, even till till the day that she, time she passed away, she would uh, grind anything in this big, huge batan, we call it. It's like a two piece stone grinder thing. That's very traditional. No matter how small the thing was, she was used to grinding in stone. Um, she walked everywhere. She could walk faster and farther than I could. But then one day, uh, unfortunately she got cancer and she passed away pretty quickly. And I couldn't come back to Bolivia for like six years because it was, It was just too heartbreaking. Right. And those of you who have lost family members, especially maybe if they're far away, if they're from like a home country, um, going back to a place or to a town that you're uh, uh, an ancestors from and then not being there is kind of hard. Right. I'd always come home and she'd, um, when I'd land in the airport, she'd be waiting for us with coca which is a very important um, leaf that we grow here and use here for teas and medicinal uses. And you cannot survive this (laughs) altitude here without it. Uh, So she'd always wait for us with coca. And then as we'd wind down into the valley towards our home, she'd always tell me stories about the mountains here. Um, They had their names, you know, all that stuff. So I couldn't come back for like six years because I was like, this is not the same. Finally, six years passed. I thought, I think I'm over it. I come to visit, and like usual, I go to the market. So the market here is an outdoor market where people come from the countryside or even pretty close by because we live, uh, my family home here in La Paz is in the city technically, but like on the edge between the city and the country. And so the countryside here is synonymous with um, um, indigeneity. So with native language and here, you know, it's, it's an Aymara culture. So... Um, I went to the market as usual, and then all of a sudden, I couldn't speak with the, with the women selling, you know, the fruits and vegetables, and I realized how much I had depended on my grandmother. In the past, I would go with my grandmother, and she would speak aymada with everybody, and it didn't matter that I had, a you know, an appearance that was mixed, because as I mentioned, my mom's not Bolivian, and it didn't matter that I didn't have, you know, that my Spanish was a little accented, because my grandmother would speak for me. So I go to the market and all of a sudden I realize like I've got this face, I've got this Spanish that's good, but, you know, obviously not, you know, look a little bit of an accent. Um, Just my appearance, the way we dress and carry ourselves growing up in the U.S. is different than here. And Mm -hmm. I felt like a leaf that had been blown off a tree. It was so, it was, it was so shocking and heart-wrenching at the same time. And I realized how much language connects us with our people and with ourselves you know them recognizing hey I'm one of you you know you grew up in the states and everyone's always like where are you from where are you from right when they see you hear your name yeah. whatever um and so you're forced to constantly reckon with that question what's my identity who am I and so like I'm from Bolivia I'm from an Aymara background and then to come home and then not be recognized with by your own people anyway that's pretty painful so I quickly got over feeling pity for myself and I realized, hey, this could happen to my very good friends back home in the D.C. metro area, in my Bolivian community, because a lot of them are like my father's generation. They are children of immigrants from the countryside, you know, native Quechua speakers now growing up in the city away from their home communities. So look, we got to do something. (laughs) And so that's why I looked for some partners and uh, we started the Quechua Project. So the death or near death of my one of my native languages in my family gave birth to the Quechua Project, which is um, giving hope to youth now for their native languages.
0: Do you know the history of your family's language, where it began and where it stopped with your parents, your grandparents, your great grandparents? And then if you can talk about any laws or unknown laws that were in place that prohibited to speak those languages.
1: Well, I know that um, I'll start with the side that I know the least about, and that's the Yiddish speaking side. So Ashkenazim or Ashkenazi Jews are Jews that live and lived in diaspora for many, many years in Europe, even though they were, were not from there. Um, I recently learned I didn't know a lot about our long-term history, but I recently learned a lot of us uh, got to Europe because we are descendants from slaves that were brought by the Romans after the last um, Jewish revolt in Judea so in, in israel um so in in Yiddish, i understand is a um is it's an interesting language. I don't know a lot about it i'm i'm not I'm not an expert. I don't know as much about it as Getchu and Aymada, but in essence, it's a uh sort of mesh of Hebrew Aramaic German. It's written in um Hebrew script, but the accent and the way you speak it sounds a lot like German. there are a lot of shared words. And I believe um that the numbers are written in Aramaic, but any Yiddish <laughs> experts out there listening to this, you know uh definitely feel free to correct me. so I understand that i I don't know when Yiddish was born, but I just know that that was the first language for my family members on that side and um for for centuries, right, as we lived there and so and as it came to the u s I know that they continued to speak it. So my grandmother, my grandparents were the first ones born in the U.S. Their, their parents escaped Europe just before World War I. Um, and we were very lucky to do so because um, those who are familiar with Jewish history, um, the I, I think it's upwards over 75%, somewhere around there. Again, I'm not an expert in this area, but I know that uh, a huge number of us uh, were murdered in the holocaust afterwards right in world war two um if they were not and uh so we have no family left um so I'm very grateful that they can were able to get to the u s um that part of my family I, with with the exception of anyone who was able to be smuggled into or escaped to to israel um now in my family, my mother understands yiddish but she didn't she doesn't speak it free, uh, fluently And I know that she explained to me her mother's generation, the first ones born in the U.S., because of, you know, discrimination, um, anti-Semitism, racism. They were really, really concerned about blending in and being seen as, uh, quote unquote, American, whatever that means. Right. I mean, they obviously Mm -hmm. um, held on to strongly their identity, but um, it was really important for them for, for for safety, right? to not be targeted. And so I th- I think that probably contributed to the loss of, of Yiddish. I know that there's a strong Yiddish um, culture. My mother grew up in the New York area where there are a lot of Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi Jews and Jews in general, and she belonged to a Yiddish theater and whatnot, but she's not fluent. Now on my dad's side, the same kind of thing I think triggered or similar but not exactly the same triggered language loss and that is migration um migrating out of our ancestral towns or communities ayllus we call them in our native language in quechua and aymara ayllu um migrating away from there to more urban centers um prompts the loss prompted the loss of language and in my family's case only specifically when they moved to the big city so I know they continued to speak and understand their languages while they were in their towns. But anyone who was born in the city, like my father and his siblings, they understand Aymara, but they don't speak it. Now, that is um, definitely colonial by design. Uh, the mm-hmm. urban centers after Spanish colonization, um, you know, were homes to or centers for uh, you know, colonized living for Spanish living, and not native or indigenous living. These these were places, and they still are places where you're expected to shed anything that is native um, for the European or the colonized way of living. And in this case, the the it's you know Spanish language, um, Spanish ways of being, this, that, and the other. However, very interestingly, Bolivian. Spanish, our Andean Spanish, um, is apparently a, a variation of Spanish that in and the type of Spanish that we speak is almost an exact translation of our native languages, Aymara and Quechua, in the high Andes, to Spanish. So like the syntax, the way we speak Spanish, the way we pronounce it, um, our expressions, um, are, are <laughs> they're like a reflection of, of our native languages just using Spanish words. So when I was in Spanish class growing up um, in high school, because I thought it would, you know, might be a little easier <laughs> than taking another language. Plus I wanted to like brush up my Spanish. Um, I learned that I didn't speak like uh, quote unquote proper Spanish, but now that I'm older, I know that's not improper Spanish. It's just a different dialect. Was there
0: shame around, oh, did you, Talk about the laws that were in place that prohibited the that prohibited those languages?
1: So I don't know on in Europe as far as Yiddish, I understand there were um laws separating us from other people and of uh, you know professions we could not have and that sort of thing. But I don't know, I am not an expert there, so I am not sure completely. Um and I know that even into I want to say the 70s, there were like uh, racial housing laws, so Jews couldn't buy houses in you know certain neighborhoods and that sort of thing. Um, now, it's an interesting it, that doesn't prohibit language, but because I've studied uh, minority mother tongues um, a little bit, so I could t- you know c- uh, carry out the culture project based on some research. I understand that the sort of like a giant in that field, Richard A. Fishman, he understands that the languages that survive often have some sort of uh, boundary around them. So their group of people isn't as easily absorbed into the the dominant group. So ironically, maybe in the past, laws that discriminated against us actually helped keep the language alive. Um, So that's that side. And again, I'm not an expert there, but that's the little I know. On the Bolivian side, on the indigenous uh, uh, Aymara and Quechua, I'm not aware of uh, specific laws, but I know for sure there may definitely may have been, or um, but I know for sure that um, the unspoken or unwritten laws of society Mm -hmm. continue to be very discriminatory against our languages. People are ashamed of it. People consider. Um, our native languages, even though they come from this same background, unfortunately, there's just so much shame that comes around with that. And um, I think that goes into your next question, but I'm not familiar with any specific laws, but there might as well be because of the way society uh, works here in Bolivia.
0: Was there shame surrounding the use of all those languages?
1: Um, Yiddish, I believe so. But it's something that you spoke in the house and um n- not this not shame in the same way because the colonization sort of happened different and there was already a, a a society living in diaspora but i know there was a very strong um desire to not be targeted right fear for safety and um you know so it wasn't considered a priority to teach people yiddish hebrew uh, which is our actual ancestral language before diaspora, um, that is was has been more maintained as a like ceremonial or spiritual language for ceremonial religious use. So that people were always very good about keeping, especially among the men. Um, but um, you know, it's uh, not necessarily shame around the languages, but definitely. Fear and on the Aymara and Quechua mm-hmm. side, the shame is huge. That's a huge issue, and we're only you know 500 some odd years into colonization. It's a very different experience than, than the Ashkenazi side, which has experienced colonization and then brought, was often diaspora for centuries. We're just starting that journey, and uh, yeah, I mean, the same shame is very real, very deep, but um. We noticed in the Quechua project that there's less of it among the young people like myself who grew up in our diaspora community, and we considered it we consider it an opportunity right um to revitalize the language back in our homelands it's it's associated with anything having to do with past prehistoricness um, you know um maybe non modernity um you know, not as good, not as smart, not as civilized. And that's a, that's a colonial mindset, right? I mean, that's the that's the narrative mm-hmm. that was brought with with uh with Spanish, right? With, with Spanish colonization, that anything having to do with us is not um is just somehow not as advanced, not good enough. And um unfortunately that's linked to a lot of racial um mindset that had to do with colonization. Um during, during that, you know, age of exploration. And unfortunately it lives on today. We see it, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of times you'll hear people refer to our cultures and our languages, native here to America. as like, Oh, they did this. Or my ancestors used to always talking about us in the past. And um, that's comes from the idea that we're destined to die out because we're somehow less advanced prehistoric and, you know, evolution is just going to wipe us out. So I think a lot of that feeds in, feeds into the shame. And I even, you know, um, even though I myself am a language activist, um, I still battle with that as well. And so I make it a point here in Bolivia, for example, to speak um, Aymara to try to my Aymara is not great, but I've been learning it more to speak my Aymara in the streets. And that's because, um, you know, as I mentioned, it's typically associated with people from the countryside. And I've, I've got a, a mixed appearance, so I'm lighter skin, So people might think that I have less of uh, an Aymara ancestry, not knowing that I'm just mixed. And typically here, mm-hmm. people who are um, are more of more mixed ancestry don't associate with their Indian heritage. So um, I'm happy to do that to kind of like, get people to think differently. And then also, it's important that I speak Aymara here on the streets, because it's an urban area. And I'm, I'm a young person, and that kind of busts all those myths that only people in the countryside or older folks, um, speak our native languages.
0: So for me, I didn't start thinking about my family's languages until a few years ago. And so when did you start thinking about your family's languages that made you want to start learning it?
1: You know, I, I always, I think it was more the Aymara, um, and I think probably because of how I was racialized in the U.S., you know, people always asking, "Where are you from?" You know, "Why do you look like you do?" Um, that question, "Where are you from?" And then, um, the language I think has—it was never there was never really a moment. I grew up with it. I grew up learning how to um, address and salute in Aymara and how to speak Aymara. I also learned up grew up speaking Spanish and I grew up hearing my grandmother's other grandmother speak Yiddish. So it was just always part of my life. And we liked speaking Aymara, it was fun for us as kids. But maybe the part the aspect of language that identifies you with who you are, that defines your identity. One key moment was second grade when we moved to Virginia. Um, from Florida, I was in public school and we had to take, like, I forgot what they're called. Like, you know, those, you know, those tests that we all have to take to see where we are, and how we're advancing, whatever. Um, oh yes, Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they asked on there, your race. And I'm seven years old. And this was the first time I had come across a test like this. And I didn't understand it because there was nothing there for me. Um, I'd never heard myself referred to as Hispanic or Latino. I, you know, I had never, I was like Caucasian. What's that? You know, back then, this is like years ago, I'm dating myself (laughs) here, but the terms were even less clear and less inclusive than they might be now. And I mean, nothing made sense to me. And so I raised my hand and asked the teacher, I'm like, um, My dad's from Bolivia and my mom's Jewish. What do I put? She's like, you have to put Hispanic. I was like, but I'm not. Mm-hmm. And she kept pushing that, and so I did because I was seven and you listen to your teacher because you're supposed to be respectful. And I came home mm-hmm. like it bothered me, and I told my dad. And my dad said, next time put other and put Aymara. He's like, he's like, why do they want to know anyway? You know, <laughs> he's like bothered by like why exactly, right? <laughs> um, But that to me was. An interesting life-defining moment as far as maybe where language and identity intersect.
0: Yeah, I totally forgot about those uh, tests. And I do remember that. And I do remember I used to check all the boxes that apply to me. And then I would check other as well and write it in. I remember that in high school, though. But yeah, such an interesting question to ask kids that are not around their parents to get some answers. Like, what do I check mom with? Right?
1: And with so few yeah, boxes that's... and it's just, yeah. Yeah. It puts you in a weird. A bit invasive. Yes. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know people who, who will be listening to this episode, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, I forgot about right? this. <laughs> I feel like there might be conversations about that. I hope so. I'm definitely going to talk to my son about this. Like when you have questions like that, you're going to be checking everything that applies. Okay.
1: Yeah. And I, as my son um, went into school, I did prime him for that because of my experience. That's good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really good. So do you
0: feel like something, I guess because you've grown up with these languages, but do you feel like something is missing because maybe some of it wasn't spoken at home or taught at home?
1: Yes. Uh Fortunately, I have the Spanish to serve as a bridge. Um, mm-hmm. And um, that's kind of a weird conflictive you know idea because it's it's the colonizing language, so it's technically not our language. But after learning from na- native speakers here who are language activists that um, our Spanish is literally a translation of our native language just using Spanish words, It's that's kind of nice to know. So I have I grew up with the cadence and the pronunciation and even the syntax that's, quote unquote, not proper Spanish to be able to learn my native languages better, more easily. But yes, definitely. I mean, that moment in the market that was all about not being recognized by my own people. When you spend the most the bulk of your life in the U.S. being racialized, being told, ask, what are you? Right. (laughs) Like on that test uh you have that you have that confidence well I know where I'm from I'm from Bolivia this that and the other but to come home and not be recognized by your own people that's a shocking experience even though I'd always come home I mean I I I've been coming to Bolivia since I was a Wawa that's how we say baby in Quechua and Aymara. Um and but still only to visit right so that there's definitely you know something missing there. And that's why I'm relearning Aymara and Quechua, because I need to be a good example for the Quechua project as well. And I want to be able to communicate with my people. Um, But yeah, I go out in the street here. As I mentioned right now, I'm talking to you guys from my homeland in Bolivia. And even though we're in the city, I mean, outside on the street, you hear everyone speaking Aymara, uh, especially the older women. And to not be able to speak with your people it's um of course there's something missing I mean how could there not be right what would you like to ask your parents your grandparents your great-great-grandparents
0: about their language within um their family and what happened and why
1: you know what I never thought that I would respond this way but now that you like catch me on an early morning and you know, unfiltered thought. Mm-hmm. I really wonder about the Ashkenazi, the Jewish side, because I don't know. Obviously I, I'm I'm Jewish. I was brought up luckily with a Jewish education. I went to Hebrew school. So I know about like my ancient history and my culture and this and that. But my specific group and diaspora, there's a lot I don't know about the Ashkenazi side, you know, beyond the like the more basic um stuff and I didn't grow up with a very big Jewish community. My family was my Jewish community. Um yeah, I I I'd love to know how our yiddish developed how it did. I mean, I'd have to go back and ask some like ancestors for that, right? But it's so fascinating to me and I know um from the little research I've done is that we've you know We've had to, in Europe. We had to migrate, and we were kicked out of places, and there was a lot of violence, and a lot of just you know unfortunate, scary, life threatening history of having to pick up and move a lot, and um, just being attacked because we were foreigners. Right, we weren't from there. We weren't seen as as the same race. I'd love to know how the language developed. It's so fascinating to me. And I know that researchers are still trying to figure that out. So I think, I think that's, you know, fascinating. Really, really fascinating. And um, I do wonder about Quechua in diaspora. The reason why I don't say Aymara is because the right now, the native Andean diaspora um, my community back in the D.C. area, which is, the again, the largest Quechua community in the U.S. and the largest Bolivian community in the U.S., Quechua is the dominant language. I mean, Aymara is not, even though there is a, a large minority, uh, Aymara minority like my family. But the future in diaspora for this community I see as Quechua. And it makes me wonder how it might transform in the future, right? Um, so that's a that's a mm-hmm. question I, I will maybe have to ask and wait for, for my descendants, right? When I'm an ancestor and I'm hanging around <laughs> and we have a belief that we come back um, in the November period as the rains start. Um, right now, the uh, the way we kind of express it or explain it is mixed with uh, the Catholicism that we picked up after the Spanish came. So we, we call it Todos Santos, which is all saints. Um, in Mexico, they call it, you know, Day of the Dead, but we call all saints, all souls, all souls, all santos. Okay. <clears throat> but we've been practicing this since forever in the November re, uh, season when the rains start. Um, mm-hmm. So when I come back someday, uh, when i hopefully resting in peace, but coming back in that period when my, my descendants call me back, um, I'll be asking, Hey, how did, how did the Quechua, <laughs> how did the Quechua do? Is it now like a dialect and how has it changed? Um, Beyond that, um, I'd like to understand, so from my dad's side, like a lot of people here in Andean, Bolivia, where I'm from, the Aymara regions are very uh, mixed. There's definitely uh, Quechua and Aymara in there. And there are a lot of other ethnicities and tribes a lot more specific with with a little bit more variation in language, but a lot of that really got generalized during colonization. So now um, while while there are regional variations, it's pretty much Aymara and Quechua and then a few Urus um, around there. But I'd love to know on my dad's grandmother's side, I know that she grew up singing in Quechua and I know that her family was from a Quechua region in Potosí. But I don't know much more about that. I'd love to understand why they migrated all the way from Potosí to the Yungas region where the rest of my family is from. Um, I have a lot of questions, but, you know, um, families didn't really write back then um, in Spanish. And um, nor did they, I think, speak a lot of Spanish. So those are just things I'm going to have to keep wondering about.
0: Do you feel a sense of isolation being in community, um, learning the language?
1: Luckily, I don't. I was, I'm very blessed to have been brought up in that community, in the DC area, the Bolivian community, which is very strong, very rooted. And um, I never really felt isolated as far as my heritage there. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's part of the, one of the reasons why I do the Quechua project to give back to my community when I left for college and also just whenever, because I'm mixed, I feel like I have more access to and more frequently bump out of that Bolivian bubble. I realized how many other people, um, I guess, especially from Latin America don't necessarily have that. They don't necessarily grow up hearing their, their families or grandparents or communities speak their native language they may not grow up with the customs the spiritual customs and all these things that were passed down to us and it's like normal for us even just the the mm-hmm. social cultural ways of being and i was like wow i'm just i'm so lucky and so this is my way of giving back because we have a very strong cultural uh value of reciprocity if you to give you have to to receive you have to give And so it's just, you know, natural that I should give back. So in that sense, I don't, I never felt isolated. Um, I always did feel a little bit different because uh, I'm a mixed person. So in my home, there's definitely Bolivian culture, but then there's also Jewish culture. And so no one really understood what that was or why would I, like, why would I not be available on a specific spiritual holiday that's not the same as theirs? You know, (laughs) that kind of thing Mm was kind of strange. Um, and then also, um, vice versa. When I would go into Jewish circles, you know, I think a lot of people would assume that I was Sephardic, which is another diasporic community, or Mizrahi, which is people who stayed in in, in Israel or nearby, because of my because um, I'm darker skinned. The Ashkenazim generally are, and have different features. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not. I'm just Ashkenazi, and so I, you know, um, that did feel a little weird. But as far as language learning, no, um, definitely a little bit of that shame and that discrimination against our native language. I still often feel it, even though I, a lot of my peers are proud of our language and we either speak it or are relearning it, but there is still that colonial mindset that is kind of like still a little nugget there somewhere that's still like, You still feel it, you know what I mean? Sometimes I am a little, you know, I wonder what are people going to say because people are cruel and people say very uh, racist things about Quechua and Aymara. Even if you're looking at their face and like, do you know that you're Quechua or Aymara too? You know, it's just so unfortunately um, absorbed or whatever you call that, you know, uh, racism or colonization. But I think a lot of groups that are racialized, have that internalized racism too, unfortunately. Do you think it's important to learn all these languages? Yes. And I know that sounds challenging and it sounds like what, but the more I learned about multilingualism <laughs> and how common it's been in human history and even my own like recent history, um, it's doable. And I think in the U S we're brought up with this idea that like, Oh, we can only speak English and it's so hard to speak anything else. It's doable. And I think we're able to get back there for families and communities that aren't used to it anymore. It's it's very natural in, in many countries of the world to not just be bilingual, but multilingual. And so, yes, I think it's very important. I think it's important for connecting, like I mentioned, that experience in the market without my abuelita. I think it's important for connecting us with our people and connecting us with ourselves. And as far as the shame and discrimination, And um, surrounding native languages in Bolivia, um, part of the reason why it's very important to connect with our own people through language is because the colonial process has been, when you move to the city, now you're city folk. And here they use the synonym of country folk or like farmer with Indian. So to say Mm -hmm. you're... A farmer means that you're Indian, right? It's just it's a different social context here. So if you're an urban person, you're suddenly now Indian, right? And what does that do? I mean, you know, I, for, from my view, I think that furthers the colonial project of erasure, right? Removing us from this continent. They couldn't do it physically, do it in our memory, and make you think that you're not that anymore. And it helps to just sort of um, get rid of any vestiges or ways of being. Uh, native to here. So yes, I think it's very important to speak your languages for many, many, many reasons.
0: Are you enjoying the language learning journey?
1: Yes, I love it. Um, At first, it used to make me a little sad because my grandmother's, you know, there's a lot of regional variation in Aymara and, and in Quechua. And I was looking so hard for like videos my dad doesn't speak. He understands, but he's also not as like talkative as I am. (laughs) So um, when I speak to him and I mutter, he's like, oh yeah, he like understands and will respond, but he wasn't very proactive about teaching me. So when I went on my own journey, I was like, okay, I got to do this my own. I really wanted to learn her variation, the way she spoke, because I just, you know, I wanted to inherit that from her. And there aren't a lot of videos or there's basically nothing online for that variation of, of Aymara, which is from the Sorata region uh, and the Northern valleys of La Paz. Um, So that made me sad, but um, I did meet somebody who um, was able to, whose family was from that area and sort of able to orient me. So that was nice. And um, now I, I, I don't feel sad anymore. I'm just excited to always practice my Aymara and realize how much I've learned. It just, It makes, I'm just, I love it. I love languages anyway, but uh, it just makes me excited.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I hear the joy coming from you.
1: (laughs) It's it's so Um, cool to like be able to, um, I think learn any new language or any new skill, but then to be able, I think the difference with language, as opposed to maybe like doing something on your own, is that you get to use it with other people. And it like, it creates this, like, I don't know, this, this magic and like more life. It's just, I just think it's awesome.
0: What shaped your language
1: environment growing up? Mm-hmm. Um, probably the bilingualism. Oh, one story I get told all the time is that my, they brought my grandmother to the U S to visit when I was about two and a half. Uh, and I served as interpreter, <laughs> like in real, <laughs> like in real time interpreter and my grandmother till the day she dies, she'd laugh about it. She was like, this pedacito de gente, she would say that in Spanish. I mean, a little piece of person, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. sitting there with her hands on her hips, looking from me to the other woman, from me to the other woman, you know, translating. She just thought that was hilarious for, like, a little preschooler to be doing that. Um, you know, now that you say that, that's probably one way that language has defined me. Because now that I'm an adult and do what I do, I'm a... You know, I'm an Indigenous rights activist. I'm a language activist. I'm a creative um, who focuses on um, the um, young Native audiences, but specifically Native Andean diaspora, but in English, right? Creative mm-hmm. products. I make videos and um, social media material and that sort of thing. I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about that. I see my role in that as a bridge. And now that you asked me that, I realize that maybe that sort of those formative experiences before I can even remember probably contributed to that. And that's another reason to to learn languages, any language, but especially where there is maybe conflict and misunderstanding where you maybe have a group of people um, who discriminate against others or have internalized colonialism and are embarrassed or or feel disconnected from their heritage due to violent or colonial factors. Um I think language can help you can help bridge and I think that's really important to healing, which is something really important to this world in general.
0: What keeps you motivated
1: to continue this process? Uh it's just in me. I mean this is this is my life's work. I'm so happy now. I wasn't doing this a couple of years ago and you know I just had a regular job. Um I'm a single mom and, um, not independently wealthy. (laughs) So like most of us, you know, I had a job to pay the bills and to put a roof over our heads and to eat. Um, when I had the privilege to go to grad school, um, I think was really when I had, um, it helped me open my eyes and, and dare to, to do what I really want to do. It's just in me. This is my life's work. This is this is what makes my soul sing. And this is this is my purpose. What are your insecurities about all of these languages? Um, I'll start with the Quechua and Aymara. Leading the Quechua project, I know that this is something that needs to be done. Right. This revitalization among young people. Yet I don't speak Quechua fluently and neither does my family. The last person to speak Quechua in my family was a great grandmother and my family is majority aymara and that's the identity i grew up with um my community is majorly quechua but it's always awkward when people say where are you from right <laughs> that question like mm-hmm. that i you get all the time in the us i think if you're racialized or um or even on those tests right growing up where are you from mm-hmm. what are you who are you so that's always complicated i wish i could say it in one word but then again um why Right? Why should we feel like we have to uh make people comfortable or fit in the boxes that mm-hmm. help them like make make them feel more secure about us because so they they can identify us and put us in a box? Why? You know, and so I, I can kind of counter my insecurity with that, with remembering why is that important? Why do I why do we need to be easily identified? Is it so they can manage us in their imagination and with their, um, not prejudices or stereotypes, you know, um, mm-hmm. so I can counter that with that. Uh, and then maybe another thing is, um, you know, uh, here when I try to practice my aimada, people don't know I come from a mixed background. So they probably just assume I come from an upper echelon of mixed society, uh, like a Spanish society here. Because I look, quote-unquote, Latina, and here in Bolivia, generally, or at least where I'm from, which is the Aymara, very, very highlands, if you look Latino, then you are from the um, mixed and Spanish echelons that have a long history of very unkind behavior towards the indigenous majority in the country. Mm -hmm. So um, people probably assume things about me. You know and don't know that my, i grew up hearing my grandmother speak aymara that my family comes from a campesino and um indian background and um yeah so maybe a little bit of that but you got to learn to like i think push through that and and bust through stereotypes i think that's part of the part of decolonization um you know we I think colonization told us what we had to look like what where we had to live all of a sudden we couldn't be just anything. we had to be only farmers and you know the 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 working hands of society um and had to look a certain way. so I think yeah, I can counter those insecurities with with reminding myself about this sort of longer term longer term decolonial work do you
0: have confidence in preserving the language?
1: Yes and no. Um, I think it's a daily struggle. Some days I'm like, wow, yes. And part of my, part of the reason why I can see this, I can see the future. Um, so, you know, people say like, you have to see it to believe it, or you have to, I I like to say, you have to believe it to see it, right? And part of the reason why I can believe it to see it is because of what I see on the Jewish side. Um, not necessarily with Yiddish, the diaspora, Language, unfortunately, we we suffered a really huge uh, genocide, and our numbers still haven't recovered from that genocide in in the '40s during World War II. But coming out of, let's just like just like that experience with my grandmother in the market, and that that near death experience with Aymara, inspiring my work for my community, the Quechua project. You know, the uh, coming out of the Holocaust, Israel became a reality finding sovereignty again in our uh, indigenous and ancient homeland, our ancestral homeland. And Hebrew has been able to be revived. Hebrew for centuries, over over a thousand years, was used only for ceremonial and spiritual reasons, right? Um, There might be some uh, exceptions, but for the majority of people outside of the land in diaspora, it was maintained that way. Coming back to Israel, they were able to revitalize it as a daily language. And now I know it took a lot of work, but it's possible. And so that gives me hope for Quechua and Aymara, especially since our numbers are here. And um, there is a, still a very strong presence in homeland. I mean, we are the majority in uh, here in our homelands. Um, but there are days where I'm like, gosh, how? <laughs> I see how when people come to the city, they just drop it. Um, And how they're embarrassed still here in Bolivia. In the U.S., they're less embarrassed. There's more gusto. There's more of a a willingness. However, there isn't, you're not surrounded by it as much. Maybe in your home and stuff, but it's harder. So um, I'm hopeful, but some days there are, I'm I'm like, man, this is an uphill, this is an uphill long battle. (laughs) I know that I said that was the last
0: question. but. Um, when you sent me your, uh, your answers, you gave me a word that's your favorite word. And if you can say that in English and in that
1: language and what that means. Can you kindly remind me which word I chose? Um, it means strength slash difficulty. So
0: shamara. Ah, yeah. uh, Shama.
1: In Aymara. Ama. Ama. How do you say it again? Uh, Oh. Ama. That's nice. Uh-huh. Ama. Uh-huh. Ama. So in Aymara and Quechua, we have an explosive sound. Um there are ch um uh. And it's um it's a very uh I think multi-dimensional language. So you also have ch k-a, k-a, and ta. And then you have the regular like ta pa cha ka ka um so the ama is the explosive version of the cha sound and ama means both strength and difficulty and i think that's really uh it's really deep makes you think mhm
0: yeah that's why i wanted you to say it cuz i i just feel like that's That's what you're giving, and I feel like hopefully that's what this topic um will bring out of others as well. you know, talking about these uncomfortable truths um that will be hard for people to talk about, but maybe it'll hopefully open them up and just I don't know for me, I just you know I'm really wanting to just know more about my family and languages um, in general. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, you Make you bring up a really good point. Um, maybe, you know, it's probably hard to heal what you don't face and don't look at. And, Mm -hmm. um, it's not about hate. It's not about being angry. It's, you know, Mm -mm. it's, I think it's definitely about trying to understand. And I know that for a lot of people, like I mentioned earlier, I feel so grateful that I come from a community and a family that at least knows our native language. I don't know, for example, um, beyond that too much, I do know on my grandfather, so my dad, my paternal grandfather's side, very, very deep history, very specifically where from, um, it's from the South Yungas, oscillating between the communities of Lambate and Okobaya, behind the mountain of Ilimani. Um But I do know, and and I say between those two towns, because our culture was very migrant before Spanish colonization. But even before then, I mean, you know, there was Inca Inca conquest and people got moved around then. And um, but I know at least for that part of the family, we're probably from there from a very, very long time. But I know that we were more migrant before that. And on my paternal grandmother's side, I don't know. And that's the one who spoke Aymara to me, who I heard speak Aymara the most. I know the general area, Mm -hmm. but I don't really know ancestral, IU, anything like that. Um, But even then, being brought up in a community in the D.C. area, again, the largest Quechua community in the U.S., largest Bolivian community in the U.S., with our customs, growing up hearing language, but um, more so just the culture, just the normal things we grew up with that were just passed down through culture. I feel very, very grateful and lucky because I know that that's not the case for the majority of us, um, who come, uh, for, for the majority of us, especially in the Americas, people don't know necessarily what language, what town, what tribe, what ethnicity. And I know that, Mm -hmm. uh, can be painful. So, um, you know, I there's that sort of recognition of that you know strength with with the difficulty. Your
0: interview just made me feel so happy and joyful. Oh, I'm so glad, um, and I think that's because that's how you're presenting it, or just very um, fluently just telling your story, and I loved it. And I got some emotions from it too. Oh, I'm so, so glad. That's that's what we want. You know, we want some emotions and we want some happiness. Um, and I'm just so thankful that we finally got to do our interview together and that you wanted to be on my podcast. So I'm so happy that you did this for me, Shauna. So thank you so much for being on the Insecurities About Language podcast.
1: Thank you. I'm not saying these things perfectly, but my heart is also mm-hmm. filled and and uh, popping or or. Or uh, a shining. And also, um, I thank you very much for considering me, for making this space, for having this podcast. And uh, just thank you very, very much for everything. You're welcome.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the insecurities about language podcast, please make sure to follow rate and review this podcast, wherever you listen to your podcast and follow the podcast on Instagram at insecurities about language and say hi. Okay.
1: This
0: is week two of the 30 day challenge. I am doing days eight through the 14th. This is my first go around with these days. So here we go. Podia trazer-me o meu se faz favor? A conta se faz favor? Gostai imenso. Desculpe. Daimores, como se diz em português, não preciso de saco obrigada, time late. There's the end of week two.
1: Yay!
0: Week three of Week three of the speaking challenge. Days fifteen to twenty-one. A, a que horas fecha a loja? Resolver, posso reservar uma mesa para duas pessoas? Podia deixar-me aqui, se faz favor. Desculpe. Podia ajudar-me. O o que é isto? A senhora quer sentar-se aqui. Não faz mal. That's week three. That was a struggle. Week four, the last week of the speaking challenge of these cool phrases. So it'll be days 22 to day 30. Prazer, I am mm. that is my favorite saying right there. Um, como está hoje? Tenho uma lista de vinhos. De vinhos. Podia dizer-me onde está o arroz? Pode ficar como o troco. Onde fica esta? Onde fica a estação de metro mais próxima? Posso abrir a janela? Estou a estou a aprender português. All right, that is the last week of this speaking challenge. You will hopefully see a great improvement in the first episode of season two, beginning February 5th, which is coming up pretty soon. And you will hear me speak about a few different things as well. But you will hear me speak all 30 days, hopefully in an improved state. All right. Welcome language learners. I am your host Alexandria of the Insecurities About Language podcast, where I will explore all types of language journeys from individuals and their unique backgrounds, teachers, families, teaching children, and really anyone who wants to have a conversation about language and what it means to them and how it relates to their life. Also, I will be continuing the tackle of the death of language within families. Now let's begin. Welcome back. It is season two, y'all. And I'm your host, Alexandria of the Insecurities About Language podcast. And this season, I will continue to talk about individual language journeys, especially mine, since I failed to do that last year. Sorry. I will be diving more into the death of language within families and getting my family involved so y'all can hear more about their stories and me too. I will be interviewing I will be interviewing folks about bilingualism and linguistics and those two topics will be like little mini series within this season and I will give more clarification about that when those two mini series happen. And of course, anyone who wants to have a conversation about language, what it means to them and how it relates to their lives, let me know. Okay, so I also want to invite anyone who would like to answer the question, what does the death of language within families mean to you? And I sent out the invitation because I'm sure there are people who just want to answer the question And don't want to do a full podcast episode about their family's history, about the death of language within their families. Maybe they just want to answer the question and they think, oh, my answer is really cool. So I want to do this. Cool. All right. So there will be a link in the show notes for you to provide your answer. You just provide your answer and... If you want to be on the podcast, it will be a compilation episode of everybody's death of language answer. And so if you want it shared with your name and your answer, just say, yes, share my name and answer. If you only want the answer and you don't want your name, then just say only share answer. And if you don't want to share it at all, but you just want me to hear it and you want me to know your perspective on this, on this topic, then say don't share super simple so i send out the invitation for everyone listening if you know somebody who has an answer or has thoughts about the death of language share with them <clears throat> all right so for this episode i am going all right so for this episode i will talk about my goals for this year And if you've been following me on Instagram during January, you would have noticed that I've been doing this 30-day speaking challenge for my online Portuguese program. You would have noticed that I've been doing... For this episode, I will talk about my goals for this year. And also, if you've been following me on Instagram during January, you would have noticed that I've been doing this 30-day speaking challenge that's from my online Portuguese program. So I'll talk about how that went and what those results came to be. All right. So my goals, they are pretty straightforward. I didn't really want to overcomplicate it, especially since I'm just getting back into learning. So I just, I didn't want to add on, like, I got to do this, this, that, and the third, all in one month. I just wanted it to be straight simple. So for January, all I did was this 30-day speaking challenge. And to be honest, I did not actually fully practice a lot, but I'll get into that. So the goals. I just have six goals. Um, so, one, as I'm doing right now, I will be doing monthly updates on my progress, and it will involve some speaking in Portuguese, and this episode will show that. Eek. Um, two, I want to start documenting what I'm using and how I'm using it. So, you know, the tools and the resources. Um, and then these like amazing challenges that have been happening and I've been sharing on Instagram. Um, three, I have a book and I just bought a, another Portuguese book. So I eventually want to start reading. Um, I say I will probably start in like April timeframe, um, just so I can, you know, Get back to the pronunciation and, like, the basics before I just dive into reading. Like, I don't want to throw a lot on my plate. I really want it to be just, like, a smooth sailing, not overcomplicated type of goals year with the language, okay? <laughs> um, my fourth goal, goal. so my fourth goal, I'd really love to do a day-in-my-life type of podcast. I don't want to do a video because I'm just not comfortable being in front of the camera like that yet. So, but I definitely want to do something like that. My fifth goal, I love, I really want to do a podcast, one podcast interview in Portuguese. And of course, it'll be like super easy, you know, enough for me to get through it without like sweating bullets. So that is something that I really want to happen this year and that will most likely be at the end of the year just because you know I gotta find somebody and they gotta be willing to like do a very basic interview you know and so my question to y'all what topics would you want to hear in Portuguese you know so let me know if you have any thoughts um and then my last goal which I feel should be very attainable it is to test out of the a1 category usually people test out of a2 and then they get into like the b category um i like i said i'm setting very straightforward basic goals and so i just want to test out of a1 and i will have a future episode that will talk about like these different categories and what does a1 mean right (laughs) sounds like a one sauce um (laughs) so i'll explain that in a later episode so yep those are my six goals very straightforward um hopefully i will get through them i got through january february's kind of a little bumpy road that will come later (laughs) okay so for the month of january As I stated, I did a 30-day speaking challenge and I posted my first go-round of these phrases or things that you would want to know each week. Um, So what I noticed when I did this is that, I don't know why, but I seem to have been out of breath. Like I didn't breathe while I was saying some of these phrases or I might have did too much pausing. So one, I was like out of breath most of the time while I was recording, that's hilarious. Um, I did a lot of pausing, um, trying to sound out words. I definitely stuttered, of course. Um, I definitely ran these sayings into one another. So either there was no pause, right? Or there was too much of a pause that made it seem like that one phrase turned into two phrases. Um, I don't know how, like, I don't know how to make the intonations make sense to me in Portuguese from English. And I think that's why it's hard for me. Like I run out of breath or like the pauses, the incorrect pausing of, of these phrases of these phrases so i need to i think that's one of the things i need to learn how to do when speaking portuguese is how would i say this phrase in english in portuguese with like it might not be the same intonations for sure because it's a different language but like when i want to say where's the bathroom well people say things differently so You might say. Um, so I um so like a phrase of like where's the bathroom? On the fica casa de banho. No, I'm not gonna put that in there anyways. So yeah. Um so I just don't know how to make the intonations make sense to me in Portuguese from English and it's something that I really want to learn how to do. So I guess this is just, you know, about practice and just talking to people about how do you make, you know, like a Portuguese person speaking English, like how do they translate the intonations? How do you ask a question or like a statement or how do you say certain things to make sense intonation wise? I hope that made sense. Um, (laughs) So without further ado, y'all. Okay, so I will be... So hopefully you guys already heard the um, first round of my 30-day speaking challenge. For this episode, I will post... I will be saying the ones that I practice first. And then I'll put the, the first round at the end. For those who want to hear, you might not want to hear it. So... Here it goes. All right. Thank you all so much for taking the time to listen to the... Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Insecurities About Language podcast. Please make sure to follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. No, I don't like that. So, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Insecurities About Language podcast. Please make sure to follow and share with your friends or anyone who might be interested in this type of podcast. Make sure to rate and review this podcast. That's how it's gonna get discovered. It's gonna get seen. Um, And if you rate it, you can rate it a five. You can rate it whatever you want. Um, But please make sure to leave a review Um, Also, this podcast is available wherever you listen to your podcast. It's available on all the main streaming platforms. If you listen to your podcast on a specific platform and my podcast isn't on there, let me know so I can make it available to you. And make sure to follow this podcast on Instagram and your streaming platforms and at Insecurities About Language and say hi. Hi. Welcome back it's season two y'all and I'm your host Alexandria of the Insecurities About Language podcast and this season I will continue to talk about individual language journeys especially mine since I failed to do that last year sorry I will be diving more into the death of language within families and getting my family involved so y'all can hear more about their stories and me as well I will be interviewing folks about bilingualism and linguistics and those topics and in those topics I will be interviewing folks about bilingualism and linguistics and those two topics will be like little mini series within this season and then of course anyone who wants to have a conversation about language what it means to them and how it relates to their lives as well. So. For this episode, I will talk about my goals for this year. And if you've been following me on Instagram during January, you would have noticed that I've been doing this 30 days speaking challenge from my online Portuguese program. So I'll talk about how it went and what those results came to be. All right. So my goals for this year, they're pretty straightforward. I didn't want to overcomplicate it, especially since I'm just getting back into it. So I have six goals. So my first goal, I will be doing monthly updates on my progress. And that will involve some speaking in Portuguese. And this first episode will be that. My second goal, I want to document what I'm using and how I'm using it. Like the tools and the resources and these amazing challenges that have been going on on Instagram since December. Um, my third goal, I really want to start reading um, Portuguese books. So I have two and I just recently bought one, which makes the two books that I have. And they're both, I think, just short stories, which is great. So that's something that I want to start doing around around April. So that's my goal. Start reading in April. My fifth goal, and this is something I'd really love to do, which is a day in a life um, type of podcast episode. So that, and of course that'll be done in Portuguese. And that's just like, you know, documenting my day, but I'm not going to do my Monday to Friday because that's boring. That's just like a straightforward routine. I don't want to document that. <laughs> so I'll do something that that will be descriptive and me using like the Portuguese sentence structure and grammar and all that good stuff, right? Um, <clears throat> um My fifth goal, I mean, this is something that I really wanted to do last year, but I didn't get to do because I just was not learning, period, really. I was just passively taking the language. And that is to have one podcast interview in Portuguese. Um, And that, of course, requires me finding somebody who is willing to do a podcast in Portuguese with me. That is going to be, like, very basic, because, of course, it has to be easy and enough for me to get through. So... That that is a goal that I really want to accomplish and it will happen because I'm just putting it out there. And this will be an episode that will happen late in the year um, because I need time to practice and all that stuff. And so my question to y'all, what topic would you want to hear in Portuguese at like my basic level? Um, And then my last goal is to test out of the A1 category. Now, I know most people usually test out of an A2 category to go into like the B category, B level. Um, But like I said, I really wanted my goals to be straightforward, uncomplicated, quite easy. And so I think testing, knowing what the A1 category is first is key. And then testing out of it just so then there's like that big accomplishment. And then I go into A2 and so on and so forth. Um, So I will have an episode later on that will talk about the different language levels and categories. So then you will have more of an understanding of what I'll be learning this year and what I'm testing out of. And so that I will know as well, too, of course, right? (laughs) Um, All right, so let's get into the speaking challenge that I did for January. And that is all I really did for January. Um, I I did do some passive stuff, of course. I'm always listening to Portuguese music. I listen to a few podcasts. I'm still in search for some podcasts, but I think I'm just going to Revisit the podcast that I've listened to already in the past. Um, they're very short, um, which is great. Um, they speak quite slow enough for me to like grasp the words that are, that they're saying, um, but they don't have like new episodes. So if anyone has any European podcasts, European Portuguese podcast suggestions, please let me know, um, but I'll probably just revisit what I've already listened to um, All right, so for the month of January I did the 30-day speaking challenge and I posted my first go-round of these phrases or these things that you would want to know In a language and I did that each week. And so what I noticed um I seem to have been out of breath most most of the times while I was recording. I did a lot of pausing, um trying to sound out words. I definitely stuttered i definitely I definitely ran sayings into each other um like without pausing or pausing too much, which made the phrase sound like two different phrases if I paused too long. I don't so <clears throat> so my main like struggle with languages and and there's a lot. But one of them um but one of them is that I don't know how to make the intonations make sense to me in Portuguese from English. You know, like how you would say one saying or one question or one phrase and your your native language and flipping that into the language that you're learning, you know, so I don't know how to make that type of transition, you know, so that it doesn't sound odd, I guess. So that's something that I'm going to be learning more about and practicing. Um, yeah. So here are the results and I'll also add in the, um, so here are the results um, from the practice, and then I'll also add in the the raw cut of these phrases at the end if you want to hear those as well. All right, so here we go. Queria um café se fizer favor. Obrigada a ele. Até logo. Com licença. Onde fica a casa de banho? Aceita cartão? Obrigada, até a próxima. Quanto custa? Podia trazer-me o menu, se faz favor? A conta, se faz favor. Gostei imenso. Desculpe, tem horas. Como se diz em português? Não preciso de saco. Obrigada. Time late. A que horas fecha a loja? Posso reservar uma mesa para duas pessoas. Podia deixar-me aqui, se faz favor? Podia ajudar-me? O que é isto? A senhora quer sentar-se aqui? Não faz mal. Prazer a me conhecer lá. Que giro! Como está hoje? Tem uma lista de vinhos? Podia dizer-me onde está o rosto. Pode ficar como troco? I like that word troco. Mm-hmm. <laughs> onde fica a estação de metro mais próxima? Posso abrir a janela? Estou a aprender Portuguese. All right, so that was the thirty-day speaking challenge with more practice, and there were still some um, words, phrases that I needed to practice more. Um. So, you know that that was just the month and. I don't think I already I don't think I said it, but I didn't practice every single day. <clears throat> I did practice most mornings before going to work. Um but I I could have done more. I could have done more practice. Um I could have been a bit more consistent. Um but you know, this was month 1 of 2023, so um I will return back to these 30-day speaking challenge at the end of the year. Man, if I don't sound better or more Portuguese in December, well, then something is wrong. Um, (laughs) Y'all can call me out on it if that's the case. It's like, did you practice at all for 12 months? Okay. Um, And so here is the raw cut that I posted on Instagram. So you guys can take a listen to that and then listen to the new one and see, did I sound better? All right. So thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the insecurities about language podcast, please make sure to follow this podcast and share it with your friends. Please make sure to review this podcast. Wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure to leave a review and rate it a five, a four, whatever you want to rate it. I will really appreciate it. That's how this podcast gets discovered. That's how it gets seen. Um, and if this podcast isn't available on a platform that you listen to your podcast, let me know so I can make it available. And then make sure to follow this podcast on insecurities about language and say hi and a little bit more. the death of language is becoming more of a passion of mine and it's a topic that i'm very much interested in learning about my family and then sharing those stories and documenting them and so i also want to hear your guys's stories about the death of language and maybe you're somebody who do not and maybe you're somebody who doesn't want to share your family's history with the death of language, but you might be somebody who wants to answer the question, what does the death of language within families mean to you? If this is you and you just wanna share your answer, or if you just wanna share it with me but you don't wanna share it publicly, I will be providing a link after each episode um, in the show notes for you to provide your answer. And in that, you can answer the question. And then if you want me to share it, please let me, there will be a link in the show notes for you to provide your answer. And if you want me to share it or not, just let me know. Um, This will become a compilation type of episode where it'll be a bunch of people answering this death of language question and we will hear from multiple different people how they answer it, what they think it means to them. So, if you do want me to share it on the podcast, just say, Yes, share my name and answer. If you don't want your name shared, you just want the answer, then say, Only share answer. If you don't want it shared, period, but you want me to hear your answer, just put, Don't share, and I will listen to it and I will give, I will personally contact you about your answer and like how it made me feel because most of these answers are always personal and that's what I'm I'm getting from everybody when they answer it. And it's supposed to emote something from you. So if you wanna participate in the death of language, just click on the link and then submit your answer. You can always email me, you can always send me uh, a direct message on Instagram, or you can just comment wherever. Yeah, all right.